How's everybody doing? A little cool air this morning. That was nice, wasn't it? A little breezy. Sure was where I got up this morning early. It was cold, a little dismal, but I think it's clearing up and um, feels good out there. My name is Joey. I serve as one of the pastors here at Connection and looking forward to this new series that we're getting into called How Do I? This constantly makes me think of a song, Chase. Makes you think of a song. Ready? Should we do it? No? Okay. How do I live without... That's it. That's it. That's the one I wanted. I'll do the rest of it later. Um, that has nothing to do with the series, but it is a good song, and it dates me a lot. Um, how do I have a relationship with God? How do I do certain things in my relationship with God? I'm going to be talking about that over the next few weeks. And today we're going to start out with the presence of God. And looking at a, a great story in the book of Exodus, and you can go ahead and turn there to Exodus chapter 33. And we're going to read a lot of scripture in there, verses 1 through 23 in chapter 23. And, and it's, a, it's a great, great message that's, that is there, but a, also sort of a difficult one. Because there, there's something that happens in here that we really don't think about a lot with our faith, I don't think, because uh, we, we kind of put God in a, in a certain package of to where he's supposed to do what he's supposed to do. But in the Old Testament, God did some really interesting things to teach his people some very valuable lessons. And it, it really struck me um, and almost terrified me a little bit of the possibility of people of God enjoying the blessings of God apart from the presence of God at God's request. That, that sort of scared me. How is that even, even possible? For me, all the things that I have to do and all the things that are on my list to do each and every day seem to come in um, probably in, in contrast to what God wants for me. And I get so busy that I find myself out of the presence of God, but having this longing to be in the presence of God. That, that natural longing to want to be in His presence, but just kind of screwing it up every single day with my busyness. So we're going to talk about that and being in relationship with God. But I want us to look back before we look forward. And I mean, when I say back, I mean all the way back. to so Genesis chapter 1 and 2 where God creates Adam and Eve and the rest of all creation. And all that he created is very good. He creates and enjoys sweet, perfect, unhindered fellowship with their creator, Adam and Eve do. But through their deceitfulness of Satan, through the deceitfulness of Satan, Adam and Eve rebel against their creator, hide themselves from his presence, are banished from the Garden of Eden, and all creation is put under a curse. So let's fast forward hundreds of years. Adam and Eve's family is multiplied into the nation of Israel, living in Egypt, brutally oppressed and enslaved for 400 years until God sends Moses to rescue his people. So Egypt's now long gone in the rearview mirror. They've escaped. Moses has gotten them out of there. And they're taking this 10-month stopover at Mount Sinai. And while Moses is up on the mountain... He's on the top of Mount Sinai meeting with God, getting the Ten Commandments and instructions for how to build the tabernacle. The Israelites back at the camp 
have Moses' brother Aaron fashion this golden calf. And they do it out of gold, these ornaments. I want you to remember that word, ornaments, that they're wearing and they worship it as a small g God. Well, Moses comes down from the meeting with God, sees their idolatry. He grinds up the golden calf, spreads it over the water, and forces all of Israel to drink it, and then calls the Levites to kill 3,000 unfaithful Israelites. And that brings us to our text today, and everybody should feel really good. Everybody's smiling, right? Because they just died. It's a heavy one. It's a heavy one. But let's jump into it. Let's pray, and then we'll get into the text. God, we're thankful for today. God, I thank you for the lives that you've already touched this morning. And God, we do pray for your presence. So many things about your presence and so many things that hinder us from that. Help that be clear today, God. Please speak your words today, God. Move me out of the way and allow me to be a vessel for you to speak. Help things to be clear God, we pray and we, we thank you so much for the worship we've already experienced. And for those who sacrificially give of themselves each and every week to usher us into that presence. So God, we thank you for being here today. Bless our time together, God. Help it be holy, meaningful, and work in our lives. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. So let's jump right into the text. Exodus chapter 33, beginning with verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, tell the Israelites you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance. While the Lord spoke with Moses, whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped each at the entrance to their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me, lead these people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you're pleased with me, teach me your ways, so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. 
How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. And the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back. But my face must not be seen. The absence of God's presence. Really? Can there be an absence of God's presence? Is that possible? Isn't God everywhere? Isn't he omnipotent? That's the word we use for God being everywhere. And scripture makes it pretty clear, and the psalmist declares it in 139. He says, where will I go from your spirit, or where will I flee from your spirit? So when we talk about the presence of God, we're not speaking of God's omnipotence. We're speaking relationally. Because there's a relational distance created between God and his people when we pursue idols or we have unconfessed sin. There's a distance between us. It's much like if you and your significant other, spouse, you can go as far back as anybody who's in here of any age who's in relationship with anyone. If things aren't going too well, there can be a lot of distance between us in the same room, right? All of our married couples can attest to that. Those who date get in a little rift. You could be in the same vehicle, with a console in between you, and it might as well be the Grand Canyon between you, right? We can create that distance. For the first couple of years of doing uh, marriage therapy, I had a love seat. Oh, it was ironic that it was called that. But in my office, and, and couples would come sit there, and I was amazed at how much distance could be between two people on a two-person seat. I was like, oh, I'm just going to get rid of this. It's just easier. And it cut down on the choking. But anyway, um, uh, but it's a, it's a relationship thing, not an omnipotence thing. And God pulls the card that, that every spouse loves to pull on the other spouse when the kids are acting like animals. He says in verse 1, leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt. I'm done with them. They're yours. You deal with them. Right? We all get that way from time to time. The kids are are going up the walls and they're driving us up the other wall and we're like, I'm, ta I'm tagging out. You, you got to do it. You take care of them. And there was, it was a feeling of this that I, I get when I read this text of God just getting impatient with, with his people and just kind of going, you know what? I'm done with you for now. I, I'm not going to deal with this anymore. And in verse 2, he, he talked of leading the people with his own presence. Now God says, I will send an angel before you. Not my angel, as he had said all throughout the text, but God is clearly distancing himself from his people. I was bothered by this. How do we get to that place with God where his presence is far off, outside the camp rather than at the center of our lives? When God is 
is and feels absent from our lives, what causes that? And I think there's a number of things. The, the first thing I want us to talk about is I think we assume God's presence. We assume the presence of God many times. I think this is especially true for those of us who live in the West, especially in the United States, and I'll bring it even closer to those of us in the South. With all of our, our wealth and ease, it's so easy to look at our homes and our cars, our bank accounts, our vacations, our Starbucks addictions, or three tree as you may, social media connectedness, all those things that we have and all this access to this material prosperity, all these things that we consume, and, and in their abundance, we have the potential of having all these good things and relating them to the proof that God is pleased with us. Thank you so much, God, for blessing me with this perfect life that I have here. I am so fortunate to be born where I was born. You must have favor on me. It's even easy to look at the immaterial blessings of relationships and good health and minimal stress and so on and assume all these things are the result of God's nearness to us and our lives. It's nice. It's a comforting thought even because it goes a long way towards justifying our self-righteousness, right? It's the assumption that even the religious leaders had in Jesus' day when they came across a man born blind, and you may remember the story. Clearly he was born this way because of his sin, right, Jesus? Or maybe it was his parents' sin. You know, and I, the Pharisee, obviously am walking with God because my life is so charmed. And I was kind of challenged with this this morning. I got here the normal time, about 7.30, and I was going through my notes a little bit on my computer and went to print and walked in to get it out of the printer and error message. It's one of those error messages where there's like a, a follow this map of 74 steps to fix this. And it was a full toner waste cartridge. Didn't know that was a thing. So I opened it up pull out the toner waste cartridge, and there's not one to replace it with. So what do I do? Because we have one printer in a church this size. That's a smart thing. We have one printer for the entire church to use, and when it goes down, we are up the creek. We're going to address that tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. But anyway, <laughs> um, we need to stand by for things like this. So I decide, all right, well, I, I kind of need my notes. I don't like preaching from an iPad because... Satan lives in those, and anything could happen. So I'm going to drive over to my office, which is on the other side of town, which gave me the wonderful opportunity to drive down Northside Drive four times this morning before 8.30. And any of you know my sinful nature of road rage. It's not very good, right? I don't have a good track record. But usually on Sunday mornings before 8.30, there's not a lot of people out other than um, Krispy Kreme consumers when the light's on. So I head back to the office, I get it printed, and I'm about halfway back, and I get through right about the mall area, and I realize something. I'm like, hmm, going and coming back, every light has been green. And I sat there and I thought, God sure is blessing me this morning. <laughs> 
I went all self-righteous in the, in the front of my truck and thought, dude, remember point one in your sermon before you get all haughty about this. And then I hit a deer. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> but but it, it, was, it was just this, like, how quickly we can get to that place of, of just assuming God's presence when it may just be the lights were green. And we, we pick and choose these things. When things are really good, we want to give all the blessings to God. But what about when things are not so good? It's a, it's a tempting mindset. But Matthew says it in, in uh, chapter 5. He said, for God makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So when the sun is shining on my life, when the sun is shining on your life, which category does that put you in? And what is the absence of all these material blessings in the persecuted church and the people who live in, in places that, that are God-forsaking seemingly? And we wonder how in the world could you live in a place like that? It makes us even more thankful for where we live. But what does it say about the presence of God in their lives? So it turns out obvious material blessings aren't the best indicator of God's presence in our lives after all. Well, the second thing is we overlook his presence. We overlook God's presence. Psalm 103 says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. We effectively forget them by taking his blessings for granted. And this happened to the Israelites all the time. God had blessed them so many times, constantly, and they constantly kept forgetting and overlooking God's mighty hand and outstretched arm. God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt and from Pharaoh. He parted the Red Sea for them so they could escape from Pharaoh. He provided water from the rock and manna to eat in the desert, a faithful leader in Moses, and so much more. And after 400 years of slavery, you'd expect a little more gratitude from Israel. But through ingratitude, we, like Israel, become blinded by God's blessings. Rather, we see them as bare minimum entitlements. It's just something we expect to have. I'm supposed to have this, so I should have this. And if we don't have what the neighbors have, we think God is absent. The next thing we do is we try to substitute his presence. We try to substitute his presence. I think another way we distance ourselves from God is, is we, we substitute his presence with strong, charismatic leadership. We use surrogates from time to time. And we see that very thing in 1 Corinthians. Corinthians believers were so quick to say, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter. And a portion of Israel's moral failure is a constant wonder, and the constant wondering from God is the fact that they had a mediated relationship with God. They couldn't have a personal relationship with him. They weren't personally, personally and intimately experiencing God directly for themselves. They had to get to God through other people. Their prophets, priests, and all Israel stayed back at their tents while Moses had the privilege and honor to speak in God face to face as a man speaks with his friends. And I don't think it's their fault at all for having a mediated relationship because God set it up this way. 
But it's very difficult, if, if not totally impossible, to build a relationship with someone when there's an intermediary, right? Think back to elementary school, guys and ladies. I can't speak from, to y'all's experience. But I know in my experience, you know, I'm sitting in the desk. It was wooden, so y'all's aren't now. But mine was a wooden desk. Had a little pencil holder at the top, grooved out, you know, always cool. Several pieces of gum underneath. Had all the things that you would normally have on a desk. And I'm sitting there. There she is. She's got that long hair. Man, she looks good out there on, at recess. I really want to talk to her. So I write her a note. Will you go with me? Parentheses, I don't know where, but that's what I'm supposed to say. Yes, check, yes, no, or maybe. And I walk up there with my bravery and I give it to her. Nope, I give it to her friend to give to her, right? We've had intermediaries our whole lives because we're insecure about approaching things head on many times. And, and that's even the same way with God in our relationship with God today. Even though God built it that way to follow the law and have these intermediaries to get to him, and we're going to talk about why in just a moment, but you can't have a relationship with someone you can't be with and are close to. So Israel wasn't really God's mission a lot of time. They were on Moses' mission many times. He's the man with a plan. He got a huge pillar of cloud. As long as Moses was their lead and took the lead, things were decent enough. Of course, the constant grumblings were there, but things were okay. But what happens when their leader is gone from their sight? Well, if we just turn back one chapter, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for the, this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, freed us, got us out of slavery, we do not know what has become of him and we really don't care make us a god let's build a calf as long as Moses is gone for a period they fall apart and like Israel we all have a mediated relationship with God as well some of us use intermediary intermediaries as um, authors or pastors or people we listen to we may use Matt Chandler or Mark Driscoll or or John Piper and there are intermediaries. We go with what they say. Our, medi our mediator is God himself. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. He's the only mediator there is today. Likewise, Connection Church isn't engaged in Moses' mission. It's not even engaged in Brandon's mission. It's God's mission that has been handed down to Brandon and who, who cast that, that vision for us in a wonderful way. But it doesn't belong to him. If it belonged to him, we would not do very well because we as leaders are going to let you down. We are going to fail you. And I want to challenge all of us to examine our own hearts in that, to, to challenge are you following the mission of God following God on God's mission, or are you following man on man's mission? Because man will let us down. 
The next thing is we try to manufacture his presence. We try to manufacture his presence. So when we completely miss God's presence in our lives and our substitutes disappear and they let us down and they're gone by the wayside, we often try to manufacture his presence. Now, we're made to be worshipers. It's in our DNA. God created us. He created us out of his hand, so we are created in the image of him. So we're given this God-shaped hole in our heart that needs to be filled with him and filled with his worship. But instead, we fill it with the things that we want to fill it with. And it's such an irony to me that the one thing we hunger for the most deep down at an almost subconscious level, God's direct presence and vitality that's the one thing we get even less of by pursuing cheap knockoffs. When we go buy the generic brand, when we get something that's not quite there, let's just see if that will work. It doesn't work. It will not work. We take the good things that he gives us. We pervert them and turn them into God things. Paul says it to the Romans when he says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Now, notice that Israel pursued counterfeit gods with the very blessings provided by God, namely their gold. And you might not be much of a history buff, but historically, slaves don't work in rock quarries with Rolex watches. I don't think. I've never seen that happen. So where do they get this gold from? They've escaped from slavery, and they have all of these ornaments. They have all this gold, gold enough to, to gather up, melt down, and build a cow. Not sure why they chose cow, but anyway, the cow, the calf is what they built as a god out of this gold. So where did they get it from? Flip back to, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it to you. Just a couple of verses. All the way back to chapter 3 in Exodus. And I, God, will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you will not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You will put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you will plunder the Egyptians. It's another instance where, where God says, you can rob the people. Again, I'm thrown back by it. But it's about his people. It's about equipping his people, punishing those who have punished his people. Israel didn't just escape Egypt with the clothes on their backs. They got the clothes of the Egyptians' backs too and plundered them of their gold and silver, much of which no doubt was intended to build the tabernacle. So he was already planning ahead. God was already giving them more blessings than they could think or imagine, and he was giving it to them without them even knowing it. But rather than using the blessing to invite and welcome a fuller presence of God in their lives, they turn it into a God, a small g God that could never save or satisfy them. And we're still doing the same thing today, taking the good things the blessings, and making them God things. We want that to make you where we have no room for God's presence in our lives. 
so we're, we're so devoted to the worship of our careers, our retirement accounts, our recreation, our vacation, all those things. Even our children's sports, watching sports, our Netflix accounts, and on and on and on. We barely have enough time at the end of the day or the beginning of a new day to give God much more time than to read a couple of scriptures on our smartphone while we're sitting on in the bathroom, right? That's all we can really give him. I don't really have much more time for that, so I'm just going to read a couple of things here and check out. These are lousy substitutes for us. See, which one or ones of these good things receives an inordinate amount of affection for you in your life? Which one of those things is, 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 is sacred to you? So sacred to you that it comes in place of your time alone with God. They're good things. They're good things that we've been blessed with. But are we spending too much time with them? Or are we replacing our time with God with them? Is there no room for Christ in your life? You're also failing to, to lead our families because of it. And I'll, I'll be very transparent. One of the, the struggles that I have more than anything is really spending personal time with God. You may think, well, you're preaching. You, you need to be spending. Don't tell me what I need to do. Mm -mm. I'll run you over my truck. You know I will. It is a struggle because there's so many times when I can prepare for a message and put hours and hours into preparation and chalk it up as time with God. But that's not true. Being in the presence of God and spending time with God is allowing him to do something, not me do something. It's being quiet and listening to him and doing what he says. That's difficult for me. I'm busy. I've got so much going on that I fail to do that. And only doing it a couple of times a week is not nearly enough. So I, that's, a, that's a challenge that I have for myself. And, and I ask you, for you to pray for me on that personally. And maybe that's something that you struggle with as well. I would dare to say most of us have that struggle. Or we justify the things that we do as being good things, but they come at a cost of our relationship with Christ. A final way that we get to this place and I think the most dangerous of all is that we reject his presence. We reject his presence because we don't want to be convicted of our sin. This is the one that scares me more than any of them. But I think it's probably the truest of all of them. If we're in Christ, we're God's kids. And we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. And like any good parent whose kids pursue sinful and destructive ends... God disciplines us. He often starts out with words of warning, kind of pricking the consciousness of us. But in sin, we, we really don't often want to hear that. So then we avoid him altogether, just as Adam and Eve did in the garden, and we harden our hearts to his voice. You know, I think ultimately if we stay in sin... God just ends up giving us what we want. Because if we want that more than we want him, I think that's when the presence goes away. And he steps back and he says, 
You're just going to have to live in it. And then the consequences get worse. Because God, God has no issue going after what is sacred to us to achieve what is sacred to him. God has no issue going after what is sacred to us to achieve what is sacred to him. God will always win. And I think God will do that in spite of us. I want to be a part of his plan. So in that hardening, we lose the ability to genuinely repent of our sin and restore relationship with God. Sure, we'll be mournful when our sin is found out, but not because of a result of a broken relationship with God, but because we got caught. It's hard to maintain that facade of being a decent human being to those around us and even ourselves when our sin is brought to light. See, because I, I don't think Israel is genuinely repentant here. After reading the commentaries and studying this, this text, I, I think they were just kind of caught. In verse 4, it says, When the people heard the disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on ornaments. And I read that, and I think, well, man, they, that cut to the heart. They, they took off that gold because they were mourning. And it says, For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. And it's kind of like our kids act up. Go to your room. I'm going to think about what's going to happen next. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. See, I think Israel is mournful like many kids are mournful. Because God has spoken hard words to them. It's kind of popped their self-esteem bubble a little bit. And because God has threatened further punishment, they're mournful more over the punishment than breaking a relationship with him and sinning against God. It's like couples who I, I work with and work with um, after infidelity has occurred. And it's very difficult. And if, if that's a place where you are right now, oh, man, I pray that God redeems you. Stop it. Get out of it. But so many couples that I talk to, the reason that it's come to light is about being caught. Not about coming with remorse. So is it that way for the Israelites? Would things have just continued if God had not dropped the hammer and said, enough's enough. If you keep up and you stay in my presence, you're going to die. So I'm going to step back. I'm going to put in another chain of command with this angel. So why were they still wearing their golden jewelry? Their very means of their idolatry in the first place. Because you see in that culture, when you... When you were in sin or if you were mourning, you dressed down all the way to sackcloth and, and ashes and, and things that were very obvious to people around you. When they came in contact with you, they knew you were mourning because you had physically changed something. You didn't just have your head down. You were dressed down. And you certainly didn't wear gold. And it's not like they hadn't had time to reflect. They hadn't had time to reflect on and respond to the sin in their lives. Because if you back up to chapter 32 and verse 30, it reads, the next day Moses said to the people, 
So there's been a passage of time at least one day. And this isn't just any next day. This is the next day after Israel had sinned heinously against God, which Moses responded to with holy anger by not only forcing them to drink the shavings of their idolatry, but he also commanded the Levites to step forward and kill 3,000 of their fellow countrymen. That was their next day. And they come walking out with gold on, smiling like a Cheshire cat, like nothing had happened the day before. This is not your normal next day, yet they're still wearing the jewelry, the very means of their sin. So again, we we just thwart God's presence because we're stiff-necked and we don't want to be corrected or contrite. So we've gone over these ways that we push away the presence of God. So what? Who cares, really? What's the big deal? Israel gets the blessing, right? They're still going to accomplish the mission. They're going to make it to the promised land. The Hittites, the Amorites, and all the other enemies of God will still be utterly defeated, complete with milk and honey to celebrate. God might stay behind, but hey, they still get to fly the mission accomplished sign. I think we all know how the story goes when we don't fully grasp and appreciate the scope of the mission and end up flying that banner prematurely. Because for us, our greatest enemies aren't those out there trying to defeat us. Our greatest enemy is what stirs up inside us, the sin that goes up inside us, the sin that is hidden from others around us, and we stay in that sin, that's what will defeat us. That's what will remove the presence of God from us, and we will be overrun by it. But with him, with his presence, victory is certain. We know how the story ends. For those of us who are in Christ, this distinctiveness of God's presence, it's it's not ambiguous or undefined. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness and self-control. And we see this fruit expressed in Moses, the way he handled this. When Moses finds his people in the middle of an idolatrous orgy, he doesn't turn a blind eye to it. Who am I to judge or speak up? I'm a sinner too. He admonishes and he disciplines them. To know the heart of God is to grow in God's holy hatred of our sin. And all other God belittling sin in the word. It's to oppose anything set against goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. So Moses returns to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves God of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. So the presence of God in our lives also brings about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. God's presence causes us to identify with others in their sin and plead with God on their behalf. So through beholding the glory of the Lord regularly, God's Spirit creates this odd but holy tension where we have a growing hatred for sin in our own hearts and in the lives of others around us. 
It creates a relationship in us that grows that way. We begin to hate sin. And if we see sin in someone else, we don't hate the person. We hate the sin. And we go to them. And we provide correction, not condemnation. We do it in love. See, the cool thing about this entire story is that in the midst of this, the people of Israel are trying their best to live by the law. The way God had put it into place, they're doing their best to do it, but it's just not working. Constantly, constantly, the human selfishness overwhelms them over and over. What are they supposed to do? Well, the cool thing is, for us, Jesus is our mediator. The one who hung on the cross for us. And even in that moment when he hung on the cross, God could not even look on him because he took on our sin. Just as it was there, God could not get close to sin. So he had to remove himself from a sinful people temporarily. And when he sent his son Jesus Christ, he did the same thing to his own son. Had to turn his back on him temporarily because Jesus took on our sin, my sin, your sin. And now he stands in the gap for us. He is our mediator. He is the one who goes to bat for us. He's the one that we approach and say, God, I have sinned. Please forgive me for what I have done. That's who Jesus is for us today. I think that's pretty cool. We don't have to live with any other mediator than Jesus Christ himself. And that's who calls on each one of us today. I don't know where you stand today, where you are when it comes to the presence of God, what you're struggling with, but I think we can all identify with one of these things. Whether we're manufacturing the presence of God, we're substituting it, we're rejecting it ultimately. I think I could go through all of them in a week's time. I think we all could. Where's God calling you today? I know in a room this size, there, there has to be someone here today who is just sitting here going, I don't know what the presence of God is because I don't even have a relationship with God. I've been using a mediator forever thinking I could just sit in here, listen to somebody talk about it, and then get some of it right. You're probably doing good when it comes to the Ten Commandments, at least eight out of ten. Most of us can handle that. But what about a true relationship with God? Not a relationship with me, not a relationship with Brandon, not a relationship with any of our staff or elders or anybody else in your life, but a relationship with Jesus Christ. If that's a decision you need to make today, if God's knocking on your heart saying, please, please let me come in. Let me come in and save your life and have a relationship with you. If that's a decision you need to make today, we want to celebrate with you and ask you to just lift your hand right where you are. Just raise your hand. Amen. All the way in the back. All the way in the back there. We want to pray with you, John. Can you go back? The back left corner there, John. Anybody else? Finished early so we could just spend the rest of the time waiting awkwardly. And anyone else who do not want to move from this time, if God is calling you, I know he is.
His word's full of those words and those requests and wanting to be in relationship with us. Anybody else need to make that decision today? Okay, for the rest of us, the question is, how are you experiencing the presence of God? Are you manufacturing it? You faking it? Or just going day by day and kind of hoping something happens? Are you substituting things for it? Or are you just flat out rejecting it? Because I know for me there are many times that I want to reject God's presence because I don't want God to see my sin like I can control that. But I know I lie to myself many times and go, well, I'm just going, I'll take care of this later. How do you answer that question? What is the, the answer to that question for you of how am I experiencing God's presence? And ultimately, what is it that keeps me from experiencing that presence? God desires for us individually to have a relationship with him. What if, what if each of us left here and spent 10 minutes this afternoon with God individually on our knees, in a closet, somewhere, no phone, no nothing, quietly spending time with God, listening to him and doing what he says. We would change the world tomorrow. I think if 50% of us did it, we would change the world tomorrow. I want to challenge you with that. Worship team is going to lead us in another song. And during that time, I want you to come. Use the altar this morning. Pray right where you are. Whatever's com comfortable for you. Come as a family. Come as a couple. Come as you are. Spend some time with God. Be present with him right now because he wants to be present with you. Let's pray. Our God, we're thankful for the morning. God, we thank you for the one who just went from death to life. God, that never gets old because that is why we do what we do. I pray, God, that during these next few moments, as we worship you, that your presence is more alive than it has ever been for each of us. God, I pray that the fountain of blessings that you give to us, we can experience right here, right now, not in material possessions, not in the things that we have, not in the things that we want, but because of you and what you have done for us. God, thank you for sending your son to die for us. Thank you for your son who is our intermediary, who we can come to and ask for forgiveness, that we don't have to go outside of a tent. We don't have to find another human being, but we can be in presence with you because of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, God, and we love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.